It is great to have you join us today in Revelation 1.10. For those of you who are with us through the online course, that's Rev 110. We're on number 10 in our study in the book of Revelation. Today's topic is called Jesus Reveals His Identity. We have some exciting things to cover in this particular lesson, dealing with the audience of who John is addressing. The key point we need to remember here is that God gave this revelation to his son, not to John. For whatever reason, it was shown to John, the beloved disciple of Jesus. Events were revealed to him that must happen, which will soon come to pass. These things were revealed to John by an angel sent by God in order for John to write them down for our benefit. Revelation of Jesus This revelation was not just revealing Christ himself, but the final events that have, are, and will be occurring around him. While Jesus was still with his disciples, he spoke of the things written in this book. The disciples had human curiosity and wanted to know exactly what he meant by some of the things that he was saying. We can find this in Mark chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. It says, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. A lot of people, when they read the book of Revelation, they actually become frightened. Jesus has made it very, very clear to us not to be frightened. And an interesting note here is that Jesus himself, as well as the angels, did not know of these things until he ascended unto his Father. As far as we can tell, Jesus was not even given the details of Revelation until the same time that John was given the vision. That makes the writing of this book extremely significant. John was given the finality of the Holy Scriptures in one setting. John, as we know, is and was Christ's beloved, was chosen by God to pen the final works of God himself. I want to say that again. To pen the final words of God himself. No words of God were ever recorded again. In fact, if anyone decides either to add a few of their own words or delete a few for their own benefit from this book, God will permanently remove them from the book of life. Now here's what Jesus said that Mark recorded in chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. It says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nations will rise up against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. 
the gospel must first be preached to all generations. Before we get rolling on our lesson today, let's view our video. Finality of the Scriptures As I said before, John was given the finality of the Holy Scriptures in one setting. John, being the beloved of Jesus Christ, was chosen by God to pen the final works of God Himself. It is really critical for us to understand the potency of this particular doctrinal statement that we are making. The writings that John produced were the final words that God had, particularly for the seven churches. One very interesting point is that the full story is in seven days. Now when it talks about in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, 
What about the things which must soon take place, when it has been almost 2,000 years since John penned these words? The answer is given to us in several passages in the Word, but the passage of Second Peter clearly defines it for us. If you take a look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, you're going to find something very, very interesting. The whole meal deal takes place in seven days. Now, keeping in mind that a thousand years for mankind is one day for the Lord. Now, let's just assume, which I don't believe is much of an assumption, 7,000 years are given to the earth. That is seven days to the Lord. We think of 1,000 years and the many generations that really fulfill 1,000 years is a very, very long time. But for God, it's only a day. Keeping this in play, when we talk about the day of judgment, it is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about how long will this world last, at the end of the seventh day, or 7,000-year mark, is when things are going to close off permanently for this earth. Another point of interest is, blessed is the ones who read and listen. That's out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. The actual translation is, blessed is those that read this aloud to an assembly. If we want to be blessed, we are to make public these words written by John from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If we want to be cursed, just add a few words or try to delete a few words. That's the simplicity of John's instructions. Everything that John wrote needed to be the exact words that were dictated to him to write and give to the seven churches. One of the questions I had early on in my Christianity is, why wasn't this book written to the world? They seem to be the group that is being addressed the most in the book of Revelation. Why the seven churches? It's pretty simple. The seven churches were given the commission to advance the gospel. And the lion's share of these seven churches became sidetracked in the wilderness, so to speak. There was only one church that seemed to rise up and shine the true colors of Jesus Christ, and that was the church of Philadelphia. We see in the greetings in Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 6, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, that's a capital H, from him who is who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. 
This was written to the seven churches because the seven churches were supposed to bring this message forward so that you and I can read it aloud, can proclaim it in our sermons, can warn the church. Unbelievers are not going to understand the book of Revelation unless the Spirit of the living God makes it clear to them. And that usually requires a born-again experience to receive the life of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit into their mortal beings. It is the Spirit that is going to grant understanding to some descriptives like dragons and ten horns and seven heads, things that seem to be coded in a bit of a mystery for unbelievers. But if you are a believer and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, this greeting is to you. You are a descendant of one of these seven churches. So let's do a quick review on the seven churches. We have talked about them before and we're going to be talking about them again in greater detail. But Ephesus is our first church, the desirable church that left its first love. This is according to Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Ephesus was the influential capital city of Asia Minor on the Aegean Sea. And this city is now known for its huge metropolis of ancient streets, arches, and ruins. Church number two is Smyrna, the persecuted church that suffered poverty and martyrdom. That can be found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. This city was located north of Ephesus in a powerful trading position on the Aegean Sea. It is known for its harbors, commerce, and marketplaces. The primary ruins of Samaria are in the modern Turkish city of Izmir. Now the reason why we're covering the basic historical elements of each of these churches is because the economical strength, or lack of it, plays into a huge part of what the issue becomes for that particular church. Let's look at number three. Number three is Pergamum. Pergamum's big issue was it was the throne place of Satan. This worldly church that mixed doctrines and needed to repent of blending the doctrines of the synagogue of Satan into Christianity. Pergamum was located on the plains and foothills along the Cyrus River in western Turkey. Since the 3rd century B.C., it has been considered a major city in Asia Minor and became a Greek and Roman hub for temple worship. So you can see a little bit how the cultural issues of that particular city played into the issue that Jesus was addressing to these churches. Number four, Thyatira, the false church that followed a seductive prophetess. That's out of Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Thyatira was in western Asia Minor, about 42 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. The ancient city was known for its textiles, dyeing trade, and is now known as the Turkish city of Akasar. The issue that Jesus had with this particular church is they were functioning as a false church. We'll explore some of the details of how each of these cultures were 
infecting each of these churches because this is why it is important for us to talk about it today because our culture today is infecting our church. Number five is Sardis. The issue that Jesus had with Sardis was they were sleepy. They were dead. The dead church that fell asleep according to Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Sardis was located on the banks of Pactolus River in western Asia Minor, 60 miles inland from Ephesus and Smyrna. Popular ruins include the decadent temples and the bathhouse complexes. Number six is the Church of Philadelphia. And the issue that Christ had against Philadelphia is, he had no issues. There was no correction, there was no rebuke. This is a church of brotherly love that endures patiently, according to Revelations 3, 7 through 13. Philadelphia was located on the Cagamas River in Western Asia Minor, about 80 miles east of Smyrna. It was known for its variety of temples and worship centers. Now we have a contrast here. Here we have a culture that was flooded with temples and worship centers, but yet the Church of Philadelphia maintained its purity and beliefs and authentic doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a couple other churches that we're going to be talking about. Their communities were also infiltrated with temples and worship centers, but they did not survive the influence. This is, again, why it is important for us to discuss culture and local churches. Number seven is the Church of Laodicea, and Christ had an issue with this particular church being lukewarm. So the lukewarm church with a faith that is neither hot nor cold, according to Revelation 3, 14 through 22, Laodicea was in the Lycus River Valley of Western Asia Minor, a primary trade route between the cultures of West and the East. Laodicea was known as a primary hub for the Roman aqueduct system. As you probably assumed, an aqueduct system is a water line. Laodicea did not have a good fresh water supply of their own. They had to pipe in their water supply from another community, and it went through this aqueduct system. And as the water left the original city, it was fresh. By the time it arrived to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And this is the very term that Christ himself uses about the kind of faith that the church members of Laodicea were displaying. John's greeting to these seven churches, these were real churches during the time of John's writing, Paul established these seven churches. These seven churches represented the churches throughout the church age of that time. Now the big question becomes, are these seven churches still relevant today? I believe that every Christian could be traced back to one of these seven churches. We don't keep track of descendants like they used to, but our faith is tracked back 
to one of these particular seven churches. Every type of Christian represented in the world today falls into one of these seven types. These churches represent periods of time clearly defined in both secular and Christian history. The seven churches were emptied out of Christians when the first president of Turkey originated the Louisiana Treaty. Although it really wasn't much of a treaty, I might add. The Treaty of Louisiana, July 24, 1923, was a peace treaty of the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire. This caused purging of the Christians from the territory. And due to the Islamic cultural protection rights written into this treaty, which we're going to be talking about in more details later, but this Islamic cultural protection rights basically activated a genocide of all Christians. In our next lesson, we're going to be talking about what the big deal is about the number seven. You know, for example, the seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven personages, seven vials, seven spirits, seven dooms, and the seven new things. Seven is a big number to God. Six is the number of man, which is one mark short of perfection. In the next lesson, we're going to find out exactly why God has a thing about the number seven. Until next time.